You're gonna be happy. You're gonna be a happy camper, Trey. Even with the spiders and snakes. <laughs> All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Always a pleasure and always a privilege and honor to even be alive, to be able to be here and be able to. Um, I mean, the fact that. Christ sustains us and the way that he blesses us and gives us life and the many blessings that we have. And then on top of that, God, in his mercy, looks down as such a reproach as myself and allows me, such a sinful human being, to proclaim his word. Um, I consider it a great humbling and trembling privilege. Um, turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning uh, to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 12. Be reading one verse today as we'll begin to kind of just allow the Spirit of God to kind of direct us through the message today. Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, that one verse strikes me to the very depths of my existence, Lord. As we wouldn't even have the privilege and honor, Lord, of, of calling you our Lord without the blood of Christ. Lord, where would we be today if it wasn't for the blood of your Son? the sacrificial Lamb of God. Lord, where do we even begin to thank you? And Lord, we'd ask that you would grant us the ability this morning and enable us to be a grateful people, Lord. Grateful for the salvation of God that has been purchased for us that has delivered us and has rescued us from a lifetime under the full wrath of God for all eternity. Lord, give us a glimpse of that reality of what it is that we've escaped. That from out of that would flow a love for you and a love for one another, Lord, and a love for perishing souls. Lord, we're in awe of you. Be glorified today in the proclamation of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is what we'd call Palm Sunday. Today actually commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem one week before his resurrection. Jesus sat on a young donkey and slowly and humbly 
made his way into Jerusalem, fulfilling the ancient prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, 12 through 19, says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The actual word Hosanna is from the Hebrew word Hoshana, which actually means to save, to rescue our God, the Savior. This word was only used when referring to Jesus and particularly the Son of David. Something very similar is used also in Psalms 118.25, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Lord, we pray. Give us success. It's just interesting to note as well, as a side note, that the palm tree is an important symbol of victory for Israel after God had delivered the Israelites from slavery, the slavery in Egypt. And after Israel got out of, out of Egypt, the Lord commanded that they celebrate a feast in honor of the freedom that they had from the hands of their captors who enslaved them for hundreds of years. From then on, the people of Israel celebrate what is called the Feast of Tabernacles, which took place for seven days. Throughout this period, the Israelites dwell in booths made of palm branches, bows of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. You can read about Leviticus 23. Furthermore, the Lord commanded that this practice be passed on to future generations. In this way, the people of Israel will know God's victories for them. This Jewish tradition commanded by God was carried out each year until the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Pretty powerful. And Jesus was making his way through the city. The people had literally cried out, Hosanna really was to save us now. Or another translation reads, crown him, crown him, make him king. They were looking at Christ as this political redeemer. They weren't seeing Christ as the son of God who would come and uh, redeem his people of their sins. But they were, they were literally rejoicing in this reality that here comes our conqueror who's going to overthrow Rome, take the seat on the throne and rule and reign. They cried, crown him, crown him. And they greeted him with anxious expectation. But Friday would come and then they would soon cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Total change in realities. And one week after he enters into Jerusalem, he would most definitely, victoriously rise from the dead. Palm Sunday marked the start of what is often called Passion Week, the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Palm Sunday was the really the beginning of the end of Jesus' 
work on earth. As Jesus entered the holy city, he neared the culmination of a long journey toward the place called. And it makes the hairs of my arms stand up every time I say this word, the word Golgotha, which is really to say the place of the skull. Historians and archaeologists tell us that this little section of land called Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, was actually a landfill. Everywhere you look in this area was pile after pile of rotting, stinking trash. And Golgotha was the worst sort of primitive, barbaric landfill possible. When the Romans were crucifying criminals, often there'd be nobody around afterward to claim the bodies. Nobody wanted anything to do with the folks who had been in trouble with the law. So the soldiers would peel the bodies off the beams and toss the corpse into the garbage heap. Then the wild dogs and other feral animals on the outskirts of the city would eat the flesh off the bones. There was really no costly, elaborate burials that were necessary. That's the place where our Lord and King was crucified. The worst sort of garbage dump imaginable. The fact that Jesus told the thief on the cross that he would be with Jesus in paradise is highly significant for you and for me today. You see, on that day, paradise came to a landfill. Paradise was connected to a garbage dump. The connection was Jesus Christ. We may be living in a garbage dump today, but paradise can still find us. Our lives may be disgustingly messy and flies may buzz all around us, but we must be, must be in remembrance that Jesus is always near. That's great news because even if we're in a really tough spot, we never need to count ourselves out because there is always hope. Well, today is called Palm Sunday. Yesterday evening, thanks to the, also the reminder of Brother Glenn, marked the beginning of the Jewish Passover, a day which commemorates Israel's deliverance from slavery and bondage from the yoke of Egypt. Passover is by far the most significant and celebrated event by Israel, an event that basically defines their existence, identity, and future hope. Deuteronomy 26.8 says, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. Israel understood one thing, that their God was most certainly a rescuing God. He was, in fact, Hosanna in the highest. Just as the Israelites sung the song of Moses as they were delivered from the slavery of Pharaoh, so we as believers in the Messiah sing the song of the Lamb because we have been delivered from the slavery of sin. In Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord, Jesus Christ. And if there be one message 
that summarizes these two great events. One verse, it would be this. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Brothers and sisters, if there's one verse that you could put to memory this morning, is this verse. Because this is just as powerful as it was in the days of Moses as it is today when God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. In Hebrews eleven twenty eight says, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. In order to understand, really, the meaning of the cross, we must look to understand the meaning behind the Passover. Because the Passover really is a proclamation of the gospel. If we just think about that for one moment, and not get so technical with all the foods and the rituals and the ordinances and all these things that have taken place and understand the reality is that when God sees the blood of Christ upon you, he will pass over you. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not careful, we can lose Christ in all of our rituals, in all of our preparations, in all of our studies and All of this, we must understand it is this very thing is the gospel because when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. The blood of Christ is applied to us. And we are accepted in the beloved. We are saved from God for God. Which can be really defined in three points this morning, and these points are these. God alone is the one who rescues his people. God alone. Number two, God alone is the one who can only provide for his people. And the last point, God alone is the only one who can actually keep his people. All demonstrated in this idea of what God truly meant in the Passover. Because let's be honest with ourselves, we hear the Passover, the first thing we think of, what is a meal? First thing we think of is, what are these meals and these different portions of the meal, what do they symbolize? But in all reality, they forecast, they are, they're, they're typologies, they point to the ultimate sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, the ultimate Passover, and that is Jesus Christ. And let's look at our first point. It is God alone who delivers and rescues his people. I mean, ask ourselves this question. Could you imagine Israel trying to come up with their own strategy or their own plan to deliver themselves from the avenger, to escape the tenth judgment? What actually could they have conjured up? What other way could they have decided? What other plan could they have came up with to cause them to escape the wrath of God that was coming upon Egypt? Nothing. Pharaoh cried out, he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not 
let Israel go. Pharaoh considered himself to be a god and therefore equal to any other god. Just so we can get an idea what's happening, the scenario, what's going on, and what's revolving around this idea at this time when we get this um, definition biblically of what the Passover really illustrates and what actually happened. Israel at this time, they were under the oppressive tyranny and bondage, what the Egyptians called Pharaoh, which actually means the God King. Egypt was a land full of pagan deities, and Pharaoh was a self-proclaimed deity among them. The people of God now pined away as slaves, laboring under the blighting sun of Pharaoh's vainglory. A time of crisis was most certainly coming to a head. And so God begins to bring a series, and we all know the story, of plagues against Egypt. He turned their water to blood. He caused an infestation of frogs, then one of gnats, and then after that one of flies, and he made their livestock drop dead. He caused an outbreak of painful boils, a great hailstorm that destroyed their crops, a plague of locusts that ate what was left, and another, a darkness in which the Bible says could be felt. But yet we know that Pharaoh did not repent. Through these nine plagues, Pharaoh had remained just as obstinate as God had predicted and refused to let the Israelites go. Now the final showdown between God and Pharaoh was coming. A time of crisis had come to a head. And this brings us to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague. I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will most certainly let you go from here. In Exodus 11, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord about midnight, I'm going out of the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there will be a great cry. In all of the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Thus, the final plague was not merely one that struck the heart of Pharaoh's military it was one that actually pierced the epicenter of Pharaoh's idolatry, his own heart. The final plague would deprive Pharaoh of his son. This is an interesting view of how they viewed sons under Pharaoh and under Egypt. Though Egypt had many other deities, the Pharaohs numbered themselves among them. And they saw one of the deities, the chief duties as protecting the Pharaohs, and their families. A son was not simply a child in the arms of his father, the Pharaoh, but was also seen as a future God King. One who would ascend to the throne and enjoy the status of a God King in the land of Egypt. Thus for God to strike down the firstborn among the Egyptians and the firstborn son of Pharaoh 
was to deal a climatic blow, not only to Pharaoh, but to the entire worldview of Egypt. We have to understand the force of what was happening here as God was going to deliver his one and final blow. As the judgment of God swept through the land of Egypt, the darkness of death overtook every firstborn that was not covered by the blood of a lamb. And the destroyer destroyed them. For God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. These words from Exodus 12, 13 are some of the most comforting words in the Old Testament, if not in the entire Bible. God's provision for his people was simple. They were to take a lamb, a mature male, one year old, and without blemish, examine it for four days to ensure there's no flaw in it. And finally, on the 14th day of the month, the night the death angel kills the firstborn, kill the lamb. Then apply its blood to your doorpost. And when God sees the blood, he will pass over you. In Exodus 12, 21, it says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and told them, Go at once and select for yourselves a lamb for each family and slaughter the Passover lamb. It's interesting because, you know, God's ordinance and God's commands to his people really came in the time and in the midst of a great crisis. I mean, you think of, you know, it's, 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 it's really enjoyable to read the Bible. But we have to understand that these things are true. And these things really happen. And Israel were held bitterly in slavery under the Egyptians. We have no idea, really, the torment of what they had been through over so many years. And here God was speaking to them. He was comforting them. And he was showing them, listen, the only way out of a crisis is through the blood. The only thing and the only way that you're going to escape the destruction and the wrath and the judgment of the death angel is if I see the blood and I will most certainly pass over you. When God spoke these words to Israel through Moses, Israel was in anything but a comfortable position. In Hebrews 11, 28, it says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. I like what 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Our God is a rescuing God. Our God, our Lord, and our King is a Savior. He is the King of kings, but He rescues us. He saves us. All who believe in the name of the Lord shall and will be saved. And God not only saves us from the reality of the wrath of God and the anger of God, 
and just do punishment for our sin against God, our crimes against God. But he also, when he converts us and he saves us, he still is the rescuing God. He still rescues us throughout our entire life through the power of the Holy Spirit as he sanctifies us, as he changes us, as he transforms us, as he always does, leaves us a way of escape. This is our God. This is part of his nature. This is a part of his character. That our Lord still to this day, the Lord who has saved us, who has rescued us from our own sin and from the wrath of God, still loves you as his child and still sees to it that you are rescued on a daily basis. Because our God most certainly is a rescuing God. Which brings us to our second point. It is God alone who provides for his people. The whole idea of being rescued is God's idea. This is why it's absolutely and totally absurd and an abomination when a person thinks by their own will that they can rescue themselves. When it is God alone who initiates, it is God alone who by his own free will invades our lives for his own glory and saves those who he will for himself. It is God alone who provides for his people. It is here the redemptive hope of God's covenant promises displaces the darkness of sin and misery and death. Though judgment was coming, God did not leave his people without hope. On the eve of this climatic plague, the people of Israel were to take a lamb without blemish, kill it, and smear the lamb's blood on the door of their home. When the destroyer passed through the land of Egypt, on that promised night, he would see the blood and pass over them. This promise is as terrifying as it is redemptive. It is terrifying to imagine such judgment falling on anyone. But we must remember, God always provides a way of escape. In Genesis 22.8, in Abraham, when he said to Isaac, my son, as he's, as he's going up the mountain to, to sacrifice his son, to be called to the greatest act of sacrifice that any parent could ever make, any person could ever make, is the sacrifice of their only son. His, his, his real son, who was Isaac, as, as he called out, he said, he says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then it says, so the two of them went together. See, God always provides. And God has provided for his people today a way out from under the wrath of God. In John, the, the Gospel of John, chapter 129, says that John the Baptist, he had saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of of God. John the Baptist recognized him correctly as the unblemished, untarnished, perfect, sinless Lamb of God who was going to take away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5 7, that Paul had cried out, he said, For Christ, our Passover is sacrificed. 
for us. Always remember that God is our rescuer. But it is God himself who provides the rescuer. It is God himself who actually is the rescuer. Absolutely just profound and powerful. Paul was talking about this. He he was dealing with the, the Christian life in reference to the original Passover. Uh, he says that he says this in his word. He says, "Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened." For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. He is referring to the custom at Passover of going through one's home and getting rid of all the leaven, symbolic of sin from the home. The death of Christ requires a commitment to what forsake sin, to remain unleavened, set apart unto holiness and the service of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then it goes on to say, Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And yet, as with all typology, Jesus corresponded to the Old Testament type in many ways. Like the Passover lamb, he was a mature male. None of his bones were broken. He was thoroughly examined and found spotless. And he was slain for our sins. We boast that we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We must not get too much in a hurry through the holidays. We must stop ourselves, slow down, and look at Christ and his accomplishments for his people. We need a healthy, healthy dose of the gospel. You know, it was... uh, Martin Luther, I believe, who said he had to preach justification every week because his people would forget it every week. There's a tendency as our default system within us always wants to turn to works if we're absent of the gospel. It's extremely important that we understand who our Passover lamb is and what Passover represents. Not just a family shuttled away in Egypt smearing the blood of a lamb upon their doorpost, but the reality of what that signifies for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All of this, all of this is part of it. It's part of who we are in Christ. It's part of our life as the redeemed. We are redeemed um, not by money. We're not redeemed by some religious festival. We're not redeemed by obsessive rituals. We're not redeemed by just doing good works or trying to be a good person. 
We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ not only saves us, but it also, because we've been saved by the blood of Christ, the intrinsic value of the blood enables God's saints to persevere until the end. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And Hebrews 10, 5 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. It's interesting because we see here Christ himself knew of this reality of himself being the Passover lamb. He knew that he was giving himself up for his people. He knew this. He, he knew that he was a sacrifice in the way that he could show and demonstrate his love to the world is offer himself up once and for all. In Hebrews 9, 14, it shows us the unique stain remover for our conscience. He says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This shows the power of the blood of Christ to eliminate and to purify our conscience as the people of God to remove the dead works that we may truly, in the right spirit and in the right motive, serve the living God. Without the blood of Christ, this would never be so. This would never happen. Many of us look at the blood of Christ only in its redemptive quality in the salvation of our soul, but we never realize the sanctifying power of the blood of Christ for the redeemed soul in all of life, being able to persevere through all of life. This is really what the blood of Christ does for us. It is empowering to such an extent that it purifies our conscience. Try to do anything with a filthy conscience. This one of the Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. I think they're talking about a believer. Because the way of the transgressor is not hard for an unbeliever. Sin is natural as a dog barking. But it's the way of the transgressor is hard because it's not natural for the believer to sin. We do sin. We have our sinful nature. Don't get me wrong. You know what I'm talking about here. But the reality of a cleansed conscience. I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, it's Proverbs 11, 12, or 12, 11 says that a purified conscience is like a continual party, a continual feast. I don't care where you live in this world, you cannot run away from an evil conscience. You can think somehow, if you just get this, or buy this, or do this, or become this, that somehow you're going to be happy. You'll never be happy with a filthy conscience. Only a purified conscience can bring a joy into any situation. You can sit in a prison cell or in a dungeon or under the whips of a tyrant if you have a purified conscience because that gives us the endurance. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is absolutely no remission of sin. As we read in the scriptures in Leviticus 17, it says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood 
that maketh an atonement for the soul. See, the understanding of salvation was right there in the Old Testament. The gospel has been preached from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's there. It's there in the altar. It's there in the temple. It's there in the sacrifices. It's there in all the rituals. It's there in all the feasts. It's there in front of our faces preaching the word of God. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed through an ordinance. It's there. And we must respond to it appropriately. God had made a way for the blood to make an atonement for the soul. And this is, you don't hear a lot of sermons anymore. At least, you know, I mean, maybe I don't. Maybe you do. But you don't hear a lot anymore about the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus. There's not a lot of talk about the blood anymore. There's an awful lot of talk about becoming successful. How to have a healthy and successful marriage. How to develop a, a big bank account. How to have a big church. How to have more friends. But the reality is there's not a lot of talk about the atonement for the soul through the blood of Christ. God provides. God provides. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, the Bible says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now hear me closely. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, he says, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Isaiah 49.8 echoes this. Thus saith the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you, listen now, and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Notice he said, I'm not giving you a covenant. <clears throat> He's saying that you, Lord Jesus, the God, the true God King, you are that covenant. I'm giving you personally. God is providing. I'm giving you as that particular covenant to the people. This is a, an, amazing, <clears throat> an amazing point in Scripture because we, we see that God Himself is giving His Son as the covenant. And a lot of us are like, well, didn't the son bring the covenant or wasn't the covenant given to him? Wasn't the covenant made with him? Yes. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he himself is the covenant. David Schrock writes in an, in an article, he said, interestingly, in both of these passages that speak of the servant of the Lord, God says that he will not only make a new covenant as in Jeremiah 31. He says more simply, I will give you, speaking to the servant himself, as a covenant for the people and to the people. God's point is to unite covenant and servant such that the character and the quality of the new covenant is directly dependent on the efficacious service of the servant. Romans chapter 3.25 says, God presented him as the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood in order to demonstrate his righteousness because his forbearance, he had passed over the sins committed beforehand. I don't know about you, but inside of me reading these verses just wells up within me a supreme gratitude to what God has done. And it's through this understanding 
of the blood of Christ. Where God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This reality, if we could meditate upon this, would bring a whole new reality to our Christian life. Which brings us to our third and last point. It is God alone who keeps his people. In Revelation 12, 11, tells us what actually answers the accusations from Satan. And obviously we know Revelation is the last book of the Bible and we see believers there. We see how God in His sovereign grace and sovereign power carries His people through unto the end. In 12.11 it says, And they overcame Him. How did they overcome Satan? They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb. This is the overcoming power of the believer is the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters. I can't stress this enough this morning in dealing with the Passover and how important it is and how important it is for us to reflect upon this reality as also we see Christ walking in his triumphal or riding upon a donkey as he's making his entrance into the holy city as he's heading towards Golgotha as they're waving the palm branches one moment and then crying out crucify him the next moment if we just get an understanding of where he's headed he's going to Golgotha the place of the skull he is going to be the Passover lamb of God for his people. We need to be stricken by this reality. We need to understand the reality of what is happening here. What has been paid for our sin? What happened to the Son of God? What did he succumb to? What did he put up with? What was poured out upon him? God poured out his full and total wrath upon His Son. And only the blood of Christ could satisfy that wrath. Jesus' blood was poured out for His people. Ah, he was skinned alive with cat and nine tails. 39 minus 1. Our Lord was almost skinned alive. Almost unrecognizable. We read in Isaiah, the suffering servant, we see what he went through. And many of us still are untouched with this reality of what God has done for his people. We just don't understand the rescuing power of God and how rotten and filthy and the enormity and the blackness of our sin against God. We look at our sins as just little mistakes and they're not a big deal instead of seeing what it cost the Son to deliver us, the true Passover Lamb of God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. God alone keeps His people because God was in Christ covenantally reconciling the world, His people, unto Himself. When Christ bore the full weight of God's wrath and he went to the grave. He went covenantally. He made a covenant with his father. When he went to the grave, you went with him. Romans 6 tells us that very thing. That we died with him, that we were planted in the very death of Christ. We were planted in his death. 
Therefore, we shall rise to the newness of life. Because He rose again, so shall we. See, it's a covenantal thing. You have to understand this. That when Christ died, you went with Him. You can't pull yourself out of the covenant. The covenant was bound with Christ and His Father. Unbreakable bond between God Himself. It was an oath that God made with Himself that's unbreakable. And this idea that one can lose their salvation, that you can literally break yourself out of that covenant, that you literally can become unplanted from Christ's burial and resurrection is obnoxious. But on the other end, you should take great cheer and great comfort this morning that your salvation is as sure as Christ's burial and His resurrection. As much as that can never be broken, neither can you ever be lost. Jesus reminded his disciples of this when he took part of the Passover meal. The Passover is, obviously we know, is rich in symbolism relating to God's salvation, both for the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and for us from the bondage of sin. We know that the unleavened bread shows the really the haste of God's people leaving. The bitter herbs reflect the bitterness of slavery. Savory chutney has a mortar-like texture Reminiscent of the brick making and hard labor in Egypt. Red wine embodies joy. And most importantly, the roasted lamb sacrificed before the meal illustrates redemption. Paul explicitly called Christ our Passover lamb. When Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples, it was the Passover meal that he ate and transformed into the Lord's Supper, celebrated in our churches today. Gives you a whole new excitement for the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? And why we should take that um, with much self-examination because of this reality of our Passover lamb. I'd like to leave you with three points to remember today. God alone is the one who rescues His people. It is God alone who is the only one who can provide for His people, and He has. It is God alone who keeps his people, and he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord God, today that the Spirit of God in this house would be pleased to invade our hearts and invade the hearts of any of those in here who do not know you, who are not converted, Lord, that you would come now in power, in covenantal power, and remove their heart of stone and give them a new heart, Lord, that they would see the sacrificial lamb of God who died for their sin. Lord, move in power this morning to save your people. Glorify yourself in moving in the lives of your redeemed, causing us, Lord God, to reflect on the blood of Christ in our everyday life. That the blood of Christ would be applied to every day of our lives. From the mundane moments of life where it seems that there is no escape from the tedious tor- turmoil that our lives bring, that we would be quick to look to the blood of Christ. Lord, when we're being harassed by enemies or seduced by Satan, Lord, that we would remember that it's by the blood of the Lamb that we overcome. 
Lord, we acknowledge this truth this morning and ask You, Lord, that You would continually remind us of this great fulfillment, the Passover Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.